I want to welcome you again, and if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up to Mark chapter 7, and we'll finish up uh, Mark chapter 7 this morning. I'll be reading from verses 31 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, uh, your own copy, feel free to open up the Black Pew Bible that's in front of you, and you can find it on eight, page 843. This is God's holy and errant and inspired word. And then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and to the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and after spitting, Jesus touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealous they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we bow before you and we ask again uh, your blessing, your favor. Father, we pray that you would indeed open up uh, our eyes and our ears, that we would behold the wonderful things from your law. We ask that you would give faith where faith is needed. We ask that you would uh, give courage and confidence and hope where they are needed. Father, we ask that you by your spirit would work in your own way to be kind and present with your people. Would you do this for the glory of Jesus? Amen. Uh, so uh, last week we sang a song and, uh, um, and it was written, uh, the name of it was, uh, Is He Worthy? And it was written by a man named Andrew Peterson. And uh, I've been thinking about that song most of the week. It wasn't my first time hearing it, but it did just stay with me this week. And the reason it kind of stood with me was probably because of the way it began. Most hymns or most songs we sing, and I'll use our bulletin today as an example. Notice how it begins, oh, happy day, oh, happy day. And so there's this sort of call, this command to be happy, right? We're, we're, try, we're talking to our hearts and calling ourselves to be happy. And then you get through later in the song and you figure out why. Because Jesus washed our sins away. Therefore, today is a happy day. But the calling at the beginning of the song is a calling to remember something. You might see uh, in, our, in our hymn of faith, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, Alleluia. Again, that song is starting with a command, right? This command to look up, lift up, think about something God is or has done, and then align your hearts with that, right? And so what you see in most songs is there's some command to do something Or there's this call to meditate on something good about God. What's unique about that song we sang last week is it does not begin with a call or a command. It begins with a question. And the first words of the song are these. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows 
steepen is all creation groaning. You see how it's different? The starting place isn't the heights. The starting place isn't meditating on something God is or has done. The way that song works is it kind of backdoors us. It, it, it doesn't take us up first. It forces our gaze out. And then in surveying what's out there and the brokenness that's out there, then the song reminds you that there is one who's going to fix that. But it's a call to look at the brokenness out there. And I think what the, the, the writer is doing is I think what he's trying to do is to really get us uh, or to embed this idea that we will not appreciate the healing touch of the king until we see the fractured state of our world. We could say that, that Easter works a lot this way, that there's going to be a temptation for many of us next Sunday to come in here and to be excited about the resurrection and all that that means and all that it means to have a savior who is raised from the dead. But make no mistake, there is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And we will only love and cherish Easter Sunday when we actually see that on Good Friday, our Savior will be crucified. And I think that song is working the same way. It's forcing us to look out before we look up. And I think that's what Mark is doing in his gospel. I think we're in a stretch where one person after another person, he's just reminding us, man, that is creation groaning? It is. Do you look out and see the shadows deepen? We do. Is this world broken? It is, right? And so what I want to do, kind of in step with those questions that started that hymn, is to maybe put some questions before us this morning. And the first question that I want to put before us is, do you see the fractured world that we live in? Do you? And now when I say you, I, I don't mean you generically and publicly. I mean for you to say, do I, and whatever your name is, do I personally see the fractured nature of our world? And if you don't, then what Mark is going to do in our stretch that we're in, he's going to show you. And that's what he's been doing. I mean, think about what we've seen in Mark's gospel. Herod is, is beheads John the Baptist, that a man's daughter dies, that a woman has an issue of blood that's, that, 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 that's not going away, that a man is bound by legions of demons, that a man can't walk and he's paralyzed so his friends bring him. That, that last week, this Syrophoenician woman has a daughter who is paralyzed in her bedroom because demons are inside of her. That Mark would say that, yes, the world is broken, and in case you don't see it, I'm going to give you chapter after chapter after chapter of, after chapter of the same type of carnage. And what Mark is doing, he's actually saying the brokenness and the fractured nature of our world, it does not discriminate on person. You see a man coming to Jesus. You see 
a woman coming to Jesus. You see a woman who has an issue of blood for 12 years, and then you see a 12-year-old daughter. You see Jewish territory where Jesus moves, and then you see Jesus go to Tyre and Sidon, which is in Gentile territory. In other words, what Mark is showing us, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, rich or poor, synagogue ruler or a non-Christian, it does not matter. The fractured nature of the world is out there and everyone must see it. And this week, Mark tells us that Jesus is no longer entire in Sidon. He's now going to the region of the Decapolis. Now, what is that? Now, I'll be really honest. Scholars don't really know where it is, right? We do know that from the meaning of the name, Deca and Polis, that it means 10 cities, right? And so wherever Jesus is, he's in the region of the 10 cities. We're estimating, right, that it's on the eastern side of uh, the Jordan over in Gentile territory, but that is where Jesus is in our passage this morning. And so I think he's painting a picture, a geographical picture, that whether he's down in Capernaum, whether he's over here in Tyre and Sidon, and now over here in the region of the Ten Cities, wherever he goes, he encounters fractured life. He encounters life and suffering and hardship and your money and your religiosity and where you live and your culture and your sex and your status in life does not protect you from the fractured nature of the world. Now, what we see in our passage is we encounter uh, the, the, the fractured world because Jesus encounters a man who the text says he's deaf and he has a speech impediment. Now, think about the beauty of what Mark tells us. We now know in the, ever since the 1920s, we can discern the connection between not being able to hear, being deaf, and how deafness affects our speech. We now know the brain well enough in human development to know that these two things are almost always linked. Now, here you have 2,000 years ago. What do you see Mark doing? Mark is saying, hey, there was a deaf man who also struggled to speak. And let's, let's just kind of honor that, that this is not a biology book. This is not an anatomy book. This is not a pre-med book. This is the Bible. And Mark's intention is not to lay open the brain and human development. But I think we, looking back on it, we can actually trust the truthfulness of the Bible because he's linking two things that we see in our day and age as always going together. Right? And here's what we discover, that the people, now notice the man in the text did not come to Jesus on his own. It actually says in verse 32, and they brought him a man and they begged, like we don't know who the they are. It's probably friends. It's probably family members. But nonetheless, they saw the fractured world that we live in in the face of the man who could not hear and could not speak. You see, they knew he should be able to hear. And if he's married, he should be able to hear the voice of his wife. If he has children, he should be able to hear their laughter. 
He should be able to hear the roaring of the waters. He should be able to hear God's people sing praises, and he should be able to speak. He should be able to communicate to those he loves, I love you. He should be able to open his mouth and make a joyful noise unto the Lord, just like everyone else in a normal functioning society. And what they see and what they perceive in this man's inability to hear and to talk is fracture, right? They're saying this isn't right. This is not how God designed the human face and facial muscles and the ear and the inner ear to work. He created these things to work for his good. And what these people see is fracture. It's not working correctly. Have you ever had that sneaking suspicion? that The world is fractured. That you're fractured, that your allegiances are fractured, that have you ever stopped to meditate on this fact that this world, as good as it might seem, it's painful and it's hard and we see fracture everywhere. In whose face do you see it? In what situation does God stop you in your tracks and say, no matter how good your life is over here, you are now confronted with fracture, right? This week I was at the hospital and was going to visit someone and was on the way in and ran into a student, a former student, who was on the way out. And, of course, their small talk, hey, how are you doing? And she's been married a couple years, and so she asked me, hey, who are you going to see? And I said, I'm going to visit someone. And I said, well, what about you guys? Who, who, who are you coming to see? And she says, no one. And she pointed down to her little girl who could be no more than two. And she says, we're here for her. And I said, well, what's going on? Is she okay? And he said, she was diagnosed with cancer. And so this little two-year-old girl in a stroller with a head cover on because she's going through radiation and she's losing her hair, that it, it just, it, it, it riveted me, right? Like seeing that image right there, it stopped me in my tracks and, and I weeped like right there looking at this little girl. She is supposed to have a head full of hair. It is supposed to be braided and, and have barrettes in it and beads and it's supposed to be loud when she clangs it and she is supposed to be running outside and playing and not coming to UMC for cancer treatments. In my mind, I know enough to know that that little girl should not be right here doing this. Right? What is it that the Lord allows you to see in your day in and day out where he screams? This world is fractured. Is it a dad who's losing his mind and can't remember you? Is it getting news that your father has died? Is it a child who's addicted? Is it a husband who leaves? Is it a wife who's unfaithful? What is it that happens in your own world where the Lord says, fracture, fracture? 
broken. It's not right. It's the first question. Where do you see it? Do you see it? My second question is, how do you deal with the fracture? See, I don't think we can see this over and over again and not try to cope with it. See, I think that, that we get really skilled at doing some things to make us not see and to not come to grips with what we see out there. And I think there are several, and this is not a, a laundry list by any means. It's not a, a holistic list, but I think one way we try to relieve the tension is outright denial. You know, oh, it's, 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 it's not going to happen to me. Look at me. Look at what shape I'm in. There is no reason cancer's going to knock on my door. Look at me, right? Look at all the right things I do. Then, then I'm sort of shielded. And here's the thing. The fracture will only stay away for a limited amount of time. And one day, I promise you, it's going to knock on your door. Deshaun Dyson put me on this uh, show, and it's called The Crown. And it's the story of uh, Queen Elizabeth. And it's one of the opening uh, shows that, that you get this image of who her father was. This, this brawny, powerful, caring about what everyone thinks. I mean, you got to, right? You're like the king. So your, your appearance matters. Show no weakness, right? And that's kind of this guy's aura. That's his personality. And then something happens, right? He starts to cough up blood, and he ends up having to get a lung removed. And he thinks he's just going to bounce right back and, and be back in the public sphere and to show the people uh, around him that he is back. He, he is the man. And then there's a pivotal scene where the doctor comes back and says, I need to be honest with you, that there were tumors in both lungs. And the one that we did not remove was in very bad shape. And the king asks the doctor, how long? And the doctor responds, it could be a year, but my guess is a few months. And right there, in that moment, you see this important, powerful, strong man get confronted with the fracture. So much so that you start to see this king weeping because he knows it's his last Christmas. You start to see him going on a duck hunt and taking every moment in. Why? Because he's been confronted with it. We can't deny it. It's only a matter of time. Another way we try to deal with the fracture is, I think, through numbing, right? I think we can numb what we see through abuse of, of, of substances, of, of, of alcohol and, and over-the-prescription medication and illegal. I mean, like, we, we are a numbing society where we don't want to engage and see and encounter. And so we think this thing will end up giving us an escape. But what we're trying to do is to medicate it. And it's not just drugs. I, I actually think we can travel to not see the fracture, Right? 
that if I go to the right beaches, to the right cities, and eat the right foods, and be with the right people, and drink the right stuff, then for a moment, I don't have to see and deal with that, right? And so this good thing, like seeing the glory of the Lord, it can become this tool by which we isolate and numb from seeing the fracture. This type of year, I'm going to be really honest, it's kind of hard for your pastor, right? First of all, I love college football. Then I love the Super Bowl and the playoffs. Then I love like March Madness. And now yesterday, like the NBA playoffs came on. And so I have to fight this urge to not numb through TV, right? Like seriously, I know I'm not the only one. I see some heads in here, you know, nodding. But it's so tempting to not want to see the mess and deal with the mess and not see the news and and not hear about how Christians are suffering and not be zoned in there and then to sit here and root for the Golden State Warriors, right? It's tempting. I think we can numb to not see. The saddest one, in my opinion, is this quiet resignation to it. It just is what it is. It's just life, you know. People get cancer, right? People die, right? We get sick, right? You know, like, like, have you met someone like that? Like, they are just resigned. They're resigned to accept that this is it. And this is just normal. It's how things always were. It's how all things will be. And there is nothing we should do. Just eat, drink, and be merry, and, and marry, and we're going to die and go into who knows where, right? That's, they're trying to deal with the fracture. I think you also see it in short-sighted strategies, right? That we, we tend to think if I just exercise then I can stay healthy, but you're still going to die, right? Well, if I just eat vegan, right, and and don't eat all the meat that's got all the stuff in it, then, you know, you're still going to die. So we we, we resolve to these short-term strategies, thinking that these short-term strategies will fix the eternal fracture. And what what the Bible is going to tell you is you can't work out enough. You can't be healthy enough, right? You can't be wealthy enough. The fracture is coming, and you will see it. Now, here's what you see that's unique about this passage. Did you notice what the people did? When they found the fracture in the face of the man who could not speak and who could not hear, Mark tells us they brought him to Jesus and they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. Think about the image. Think about this image. And and I'm imagining like holding a baby. I see some of you holding babies and you're like nursing them, right? But I got this image in my mind of What is it that I see that causes me pain and heartache? And what I might want to be tempted to do is to deny it. I might be tempted to act like I don't see it. I might be tempted to accept short-term solutions. But has it ever crossed your mind that we can actually take that thing and we can walk it to Jesus? And say, Jesus, can you touch this? Can you fix this? Can you get with me in this? 
You see, we use this quote about C.S. Lewis, which I love. I absolutely love it. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in the world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. How about we flip that and change it and modify it and say this, if I find in my life and in my world fractures that I can't fix, then maybe those fractures are meant to be placed and given to the one who can fix it. That's what you see in this passage. They're bringing this thing, this person, to Jesus. And did you notice Jesus' response? Come on. I can fix this. You can't. Medicine can't. But I can. Now, why? Like, why is Jesus the one who, we, who is the one that we can bring these things to? Why him and no other? Why him? And which leads us to our third point, our question. Why can we trust that Jesus is the one who will put the world back together again? That's the question. Why? Like, like, why him? Because that's what they're showing us, and that's what I'm telling us that we should do. Bring it to him. Bring it to the king in whose hands there are healing. Bring that to him. Now, why him, right? Because that's a bold statement. If, if I'm telling you bring it to him, then what I'm saying is I don't care who you go to out there. They're not going to fix it. I'm saying that I don't care what else you try, it's not going to fix it. What I am saying that there is one who has walked the earth, who wears the title as the sovereign king of the world, and he says, bring it to me. Now, why? Why him and him alone? It's a good question. And the first sub point is that he is your promised king. Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, the day that the people laid palm branches down, the day that they took their clothing off and laid it in the streets, and the day that they actually uttered these words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Did you catch what they're singing? They're actually seeing in the person and work of Jesus a king, and not just a king, the king. And what were they expecting that king to do on that day? We have every reason to believe that they were expecting that this son of David would come into Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. And their minds are looking two places. They're going back to Exodus during the uh, institution of the Passover when the Lord disrupted and dismantled Pharaoh in Egypt. And he says, this is the last plague. The last plague will be a plague of death. I will pass through your midst. And if there is blood of a lamb on your door, then I will pass over your home and you will not die. But if there is no blood, then I will go and I will take the firstborn of everyone. And they wake up the next morning and it happened. And this Pharaoh who had this hardened heart, who was keeping in them for so long, finally he says, okay, go, right? 
And then you have Moses who leads them out and leads them through the wilderness and leads them through the Red Sea. And now they are on their way to their land. We have every reason to believe that this is what's going through their minds. Our deliverer is here. And our deliverer is going to be our king. And our king, Jesus, is going to do war with those over us. And we will have our freedom. Why would they call him a king? Because they know the Bible. And they know that whether you're reading what's said about David, David, your son will be on the throne forever, 2 Samuel 7. Whether it's Daniel in Babylon who has this vision of a king whose kingdom will not end. Whether it's Ezekiel who said, my servant David shall be king over them and one king shall be over them and they will not be two nations but one. Or Isaiah in our passage this morning that, that right read, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and the prince will rule in justice. What they're saying, they're assimilating all of the Old Testament promises, and all of these promises are pointing not towards a figure, but the figure, the king of the Bible who will come and rescue his people. And I know that's so hard to see because we see names, and we see places, and we see people, and we see failures in the Bible. But to read it properly We have to see the message of the Old Testament. You sinned against me in the garden, and you failed. But I will send a man born of a woman, and he will deliver you. And we start to see that that promise in Genesis morphs and it becomes that this one who will deliver will be born of Eve and will be born of Seth. And we start to see this one who will deliver is he will be a prophet, a priest, and a king. And then by the time you get to Jesus' birth, we start to see it's all coming now in this one person. That's the message of the Old Testament. And therefore, one of the reasons that we can trust That Jesus is the ultimate king is because you see that hope in the Bible. Which leads us to the second sub-point. He's promised, and then what you see in Jesus' life is proof. He starts to prove to people that I'm the one. Now, how does he prove it? He proves it through his preferences, family. Did it ever dawn on you, if, if I'm king, I'm not riding in Jerusalem like on a donkey. I'm going to come in that boy on a tank, right? And if I'm in his day, I'm going to have me the baddest battle horse and all the gear you can give me. I'm going to have on my long robe. You're going to know I'm the king, right? And dude comes in on a donkey? And you're like, come on, really? That's the best you got? But you do know that Zechariah, this is the message from Zechariah, which was right after Israel. I mean, it was right during the same time of Ezra, Nehemiah. Around that time, you get this prophet who says, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. 
So when Jesus chooses to come into Jerusalem, you want to know what preferred animal he chooses? The animal that his father said the king would ride on. And I think you see this again in our text. Did you catch what Wright read in Isaiah 32 and Isaiah 35? Behold, a king will reign, and during his reign, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And who does Jesus heal in this passage? A man who can't hear. A man who can't see. I mean, who can't talk. You want to know why Jesus is in the backwoods, hanging out with blind folks and poor folks and deaf folks? You want to know why he's doing everything we see him doing? It's because the Father is saying, this is how you will know who the king is, you will see him prefer and move and do these things. The second reason we can, Jesus proves himself is through his personalized care. Look, we know enough now that no two fingerprints are the same, right? No two snowflakes are the same, right? We know enough now that if you have two twins no matter how much they look alike, they're going to be two fundamentally different and diverse people. And this, is, this diversity is, is from the hand of God. It makes perfect sense to me then, beloved, that when Jesus is showing his grace and mercy to individuals, that he's going to tailor himself to what we need. If you were with us last week, and I think this is a beautiful contrast, if you were here last week when the Syrophoenician woman came and Jesus is like, yo, it's not right for the dog to take the children's food, right? Like, why would he use that language? I make the case to you that I think History and, and Scripture shows us that Tyre and Sidon were a, a prideful people. And so what Jesus is doing in that moment is working humility. But did you notice how Jesus treats the man in our passage? It's absolutely beautiful. It's different. Now, we know enough about medicine and brain development and, and our senses to know this. That most of the time when you have someone who can't see, their sense of hearing explodes. They just hear better. And we know something is happening in the brain. It's not that they hear better, but the portion of the brain that was kind of used for seeing is now rewired and, and they're able to hear better, right? We know this about people who, who can't talk and who can't hear, their sense of sight, it's better, and their sense of touch is better, right? This is just science. It's common stuff to us now, but, but lay this on top of how Jesus treats this man. This man cannot hear and cannot talk, and so you would almost anticipate that the two senses that work the best 
It's his ability to see and his ability to touch. Like those two things are off the charts. Now lay that on top of how Jesus treats the man. Look at what it says. First, when they bring the man, it says that Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd. Why would he do that? My guess is I don't want you to see everyone else. I want your eyes on me. And look at what else he does. Notice as he put his fingers in his ears, he's touching the man. Jesus did not have to touch him. He just healed the woman's daughter by speaking it. And the woman, when she got home, she found her daughter was well. He did not need to touch the man. But it says he put his fingers in his ears, and then Jesus spit, and then he touched the man's tongue. Look, this is kind of gross, because if you dig in my ears, you're going to probably get some earwax, right? And I definitely don't want you spitting on your hands and putting your dirty hands in my mouth, right? That's just kind of gross, right? But for a man who can't hear, who can't talk, you know what Jesus is doing? I want you to see me and me alone. And these are my hands. These are my hands, and I will touch you. And even more, did you notice what Jesus said when the man was healed? Mark says Jesus actually said one word. He says, Ephaphtha, right? And here's the thing, scholars don't necessarily know where that word comes from. And then Mark tells us it means be opened. But did you notice Jesus did not give this man a mini sermon? He did not wax long and eloquent. He said one word, perhaps in the language of the man who had learned to read lips. One word, be open. You see what Jesus is doing? He is personalizing care and compassion and tailor-making and, and, and working in such a way that this man can see you're the one. And it's not just in his personalized care that we would see that he's the Messiah. It's also in the price that he would pay. Verse 34 says that Jesus looked up to heaven and said with a sigh. And here's the thing. The man was not healed at that moment. So whatever the sigh was, he could not hear it. And so Tim Keller makes the statement that that sigh is not there for the man. It's for us. That what Jesus is doing is showing the weightiness and the pain and the sadness. Now, why? Keller says this. Why isn't Jesus smiling and grinning at the man saying, just wait until you see what I'm going to do for you, right? Because an even deeper identification is going on. In Isaiah 35, it says the king will heal the deaf and the mute, but there is something else in the passage Isaiah 35 also speaks of the king's divine retribution. But we never see Jesus pulling out the sword. We never see him smiting people. We Where is the divine retribution then, Keller asks? And he answers this question this way. 
Jesus did not come to bring divine retribution. He came to bear it. And what you see Jesus showing us in that moment, this healing that is going to be free and awesome for you, it's going to be costly for me. I'm going to have to go and die for this. I'm going to attack the problem at the source and the alienation between you and your body, the alienation between you and the world is ultimately from an alienation between you and your creator. And when I reconcile you to create your creator, I'm going to set in motion the recreation of everything. But what I will do is costly. And Jesus says, I'll do it. This is the Father's way of saying to us, Redeemer, when you find a king whose agenda is his agenda, the Father says, that's my king. When you find a king who will do exactly what my word commands, that's my king. When you find a king who will look at the weak and the afflicted and hurting and take them by the hand and communicate in a way that they can understand, that's my king. When you find a king who will take the prideful and the arrogant and humble them, that's my king. When you find a king whose agenda is to restore all of creation, heaven and earth, and people on the earth back to its maker and make things better than they were in the beginning, the Father says, that's my king. And when you find a king who will bear my judgment so that he might free my people, that's my king. And when you find a king who will be beaten until he's blinded so that the blinded might see, the Father says, that's my king. And when you find a king who will have his own mouth parched where he can't speak, so that he could free those who can't speak, that's my king. And when you find a king who will spit on his hands and, and, and free those and who th will then be spit upon on the cross, that's my king. And the father says, if that's my king, he better be your king. Because there are no other hands out there that can fix the fractured nature of our world or you other than Jesus Christ. And so God is calling us, I have promised my king, I have sent my king, and my king does all things well. So how do we respond? We bow the knee and we worship that king. Do you believe it, Redeemer, that wherever you see fracture, your heart, your body, your soul, do you believe by faith that he, if he has done a work for you on the cross, the work of the cross will permeate all things one day. And we can rest and trust and worship. My last question before us this morning is this. How should we now live in light of this? I love what Mark says in verse 35 to 37. And the man's ears were open, his tongue released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf and the mute hear and speak. You see how they're responding? 
just praise. He has done all things well. It's opening our mouths and proclaiming that. And we do that every week that we worship and sing. Make no mistake about it. Your audience is not me and is not your neighbor. Your audience is the king of kings. And he delights to hear you open your mouth and give him glory. We become a preaching people. Did you catch the drift here that Jesus tried to keep them silent and they just opened their mouths and they just kept talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. Is that not a picture of what we're called to do in response to the king? If he's met us and touched us and healed us, if he's making all things new, then one of the implications is talk about it. Talk about it. And lastly, we're a patient people. We know, right? He's making all things new. And we can wait with hope until he finishes what he started. I'll close with these words from that same song we opened with. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Is he worthy? He is. Is he worthy? He is. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you, and I pray that we would find refuge in the healing touch of our King. Father, I pray that those who don't know you today might today be a day where they bring their guilt and their shame and lay it before you. And might they in faith believe that you will pardon and cleanse and heal and cover I pray for those of us who know you, might today be a day where we come to you again and trust and rest in your finished work on the cross. Thank you for doing all things well. We bless you. Amen.